Would you turn in Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can find Ephesians 1 on page 946. This morning we continue our sermon series that we're calling The Church's One Foundation, to borrow from the great hymn that we just sung, this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. We're still working through this amazing treasure trove of a first paragraph that we've said is a single run-on 202-word sentence in the original Greek of the New Testament. We've seen that this plan of salvation involves the whole trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the Father's pleasure and will in choosing sinful people for adoption into His family, the Son who provides redemption through His blood as the perfect sacrifice taking the place of His sinful people. And now this morning, we'll look at the role of the Holy Spirit who seals the inheritance of God's people. Let's read. I'll start in verse 11. Listen carefully. These are God's words. In Him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we sing and we say this is amazing grace. We wonder of amazing love. How can it be? And in our questions, Lord, in our awe, You provide the answers through Your Scripture. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank You for this work of salvation that we do not deserve. Continue to unfold this gospel treasure that we might understand, that we might believe, that we might be more and more made like Jesus, our Savior, our King. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to ask three questions to walk us through this section of Ephesians chapter 1. The first question is, whose inheritance? And verse 11 sets the stage by saying, in Him we were also chosen. But that phrase can also be translated, in Him we were made an inheritance, or in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Those options, while they sound so different in English, aren't as different as they seem. They're really describing the same reality. That underlined phrase is one word in the Greek of the New Testament, which literally means to appoint or to choose by lot. It describes God's claim of His own portion, His own inheritance, His claim of something for Himself, which is a consistent biblical theme. Listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 43, the first verse. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, He who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. 
in Christ, we were also chosen. We were made an inheritance. That's reinforced in verse 14 that says, in Ephesians 1, uh, we are God's possession. And the other translation fits just as well. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance because we were created to be most fully satisfied in this sin-free relationship with our Creator. What the Father promises to His children as heirs is not a bunch of stuff. It's not wonderful circumstance working itself out exactly as you have always wanted it to. What the Father promises to His children as heirs is Himself, the greatest gift in this relationship vertically. Whose inheritance is our question? The two answers are God's and ours, both at the same time. Relationship makes these phrases meld into one. These realities meld into one. Suppose Cedar says to me, you are my greatest gift. I know that's hard to believe for some of you. Some of you would be looking for the the gift receipt uh, for a (laughs) polite return, but she has said it and she has meant it. And that means I have been made an inheritance because she is to receive me as a gift. But if I say to her, as I have, no, no, you are my greatest gift, then that means I have obtained an inheritance in her. She's my gift that I'm receiving. We wouldn't say in light of that context of relationship that those two phrases are very different. In Christ, we were made an inheritance. We are God's special possession, as hard as that is to believe. And in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance because His whole work of redeeming and reconciling is to bring us back into this intimacy with Himself, and we inherit Him, which means we inherit all things. This is why true salvation can't be lost. A few weeks ago when we were talking about one of the most challenging doctrines in the Bible, predestination, I said that it's also one of the most comforting realities. If you truly are in Christ by faith, then God will never let you go. Jesus says in John chapter 10 of His people, I have given them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's not possible. If your salvation didn't originally depend on you figuring out faith and then demonstrating enough goodness, then neither will getting to the finish line of salvation depend upon your will and your strength. God will bring His all-powerful and perfectly wise plan to fruition no matter your screw-ups and mine. How do we know that? as we wait. He provides us a guarantee. That's where we go secondly. Where's the guarantee? Here are a few examples from everyday life. When you deposit money in a bank, FDIC insurance guarantees that if there's a run on the bank, if there's some kind of financial catastrophe that brings down the whole system, up to $250,000 is protected by the strength of the U.S. government. That's your guarantee. If you borrow money to buy a house, the bank uh, treats your house as collateral. It guarantees the lender 
an asset that has value should you fail to pay back the loan. And so your house would get foreclosed and the bank would own your house and the property and put it up for sale to get back some of its money. That's its guarantee, collateral. And one more example from a consumer's perspective. 20 months ago, March 2016, Tesla started taking reservations for its Model 3 sedan. It hadn't been built yet. But since then, 500,000 people have plunked down a $1,000 deposit to keep their place in line so that whenever Tesla starts making enough of these cars, and they still haven't figured it out, they say most people have to wait a total of two and a half years by the end of next year. All of these people will have the privilege of paying whatever price Tesla sets at the time to buy this car that they've been waiting for so long. If waiting two and a half years to buy a car seems long... We need to be honest with ourselves. The reality is that some of what Paul calls every spiritual blessing in Christ, verse 3, won't be experienced until Jesus comes back at the end of history, until uh, the hope of glory becomes full reality. And so if you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, a fair question is, what keeps your place in line? What guarantees your claim to an inheritance? And the answer God gives through the Apostle Paul's in verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. Your guarantee is the Holy Spirit who's called two things, a seal and a deposit. The Holy Spirit's sealing only shows up in two other places in the Bible. One of them is Second Corinthians chapter two, Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse twenty-one, that, where it says, "Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come." Same set of ideas here. And then sealing shows up again in Ephesians chapter 4, a little bit later, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There it is. Even Jesus was sealed. He says of himself in John chapter 6, on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He was probably thinking of his baptism when the Father spoke audibly and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. A seal is a mark of authenticity and authority. And so the king's seal was a stamp or even a ring that he would wear and impress into soft wax that would harden and secure a letter, for example, until the recipient broke that seal and opened it for their eyes only. Another example of a seal is branding an animal to designate ownership. And so if a cattle or a bunch of cattle get uh, run away, wander off out of their pasture, the mark on each animal makes it clear who they belong to. Just like 2 Corinthians calls the seal of the Holy Spirit a, a seal of ownership. He set His seal upon His people. He has claimed us as His own. Those seals in uh, real life are external, but the seal of the Holy Spirit is internal. It's a claim. It's a promise. 
the creator of the universe, says, this is my son or daughter. This one belongs to me. And he proves that by planting his spirit in everyone who believes. And then the Holy Spirit is called a deposit, secondly, in verse 13. Uh, A first installment, a down payment. Those are the senses of the word as it was used 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit is the first blessing of many more to come. He's the guarantee that uh, this is just the beginning. It's like the first course of a 10-course feast that just teases your eyes and your senses of what is still to come. Well, here are the two sides of this coin that we need to emphasize one and the other depending on the context. The first side is every spiritual blessing in Christ isn't just in the future. It isn't that we just bide our time and... and um, tread water, if you will, through this life until we get what God promises us. And then when we get to heaven, quote-unquote, we will have joy. No, every spiritual blessing starts now. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. If you're the lender and you receive the down payment, that's money in your hand. That's not just a promise. That's just the first of what is to come. But the other side of the coin is this. If there's a longing for more, if brokenness and suffering and frustration are weighing you down, if those are the circumstances of life and you are crying out to God, come quickly, Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit as a down payment is your guarantee that the more will come, that God is at work even now bringing about a better and fuller and final restoration and renewal and reconciliation. The last question we ask this morning is, whose are you? W-H-O-S-E, whose are you? If you took Friday off from work and went to a park just to walk and relax, and you saw a three-year-old little girl, your first instinct would be to look around and find a responsible adult to pair with this child, right? Something's wrong. And if you saw no one around, you would cautiously approach this toddler and kneel down at her level and ask, where's mommy or daddy? Are you lost? That's fundamentally a question of whose are you? To whom do you belong Nothing else matters, not the kid's ethnicity, not their favorite food, not whether they have other siblings, not what they were doing at the park to begin with. Nothing else, is matter, uh, nothing else matters except the question, to whom does this child belong? It's a question of relationship, of belonging to a family. Who you are, a question of identity, is defined by whose you are, a question of belonging. Who you are is defined by whose you are. And here's where we're going to go with this just for a few minutes. So much brokenness that we exhibit and we suffer and experience at other people's hands, so much brokenness flows out of an identity crisis, knowing who you are. 
which comes from spiritual lostness, from uncertainty and confusion about your sense of belonging, whose you are. Let me give you just three examples. I, I, I trust there, there will be some parts of these examples that you can relate to. If you think your identity comes from accomplishment, then you will overwork. You will freak out about tests at school. You get upset when you don't get the grade or don't get the promotion. You crave that pat on the back, that compliment about how hard you work. You tell people regularly how busy you are, how full your calendar is, and you can't sit still. You can't rest. You can't enjoy the little things of life. You're always going if you think your identity comes from a sense of accomplishment. If you think your identity comes from peer approval, from social status, you will spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. You must have the right clothes, play the right songs, follow the right celebrities. You're always concerned about what everyone else is doing because you measure yourself against these peers. You love the lovable. That's easy. But you ignore the hurting, the needy, those who don't do anything for you, don't, don't elevate your social status, won't make you feel good about yourself. You might even disdain people who are beneath you as you climb the ladder socially, professionally. You don't RSVP to invitations, at least not right away, because you fear missing out on something better, maybe an opportunity to mix with the right people in the right circumstance climb the ladder. And sometimes your mood is ruined from just one rude comment, one social slight not getting invited, one impatient or dismissive word if you derive your identity from peer approval and social status. If you think your identity comes from beauty, you obsess over everything you eat, you spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. You are constantly shopping and getting upset when things don't fit you well. You check out other people of the same gender because your idol is all about comparison. How do I stack up? Am I good enough? Am I prettier than him, her, uh, better looking than him? And when you look good, you exult. But when you don't, you wallow in self-pity if you think your identity comes from beauty. What's the antidote to your identity crisis? You need to know whose you are. You need to better understand a sense of belonging. And as you trust in Jesus, the Redeemer, the God of this universe, calls you His own, places His seal of ownership on you, adopts you into His family, and leaves you a guarantee, Holy Spirit, that there's so much more blessing to come. If He has given you a name, then you don't need to make a name for yourself. You don't need to generate a sense of identity. If He has adopted you, adopted you into His forever family as son or daughter, then your belonging in that family is absolutely secure, and you don't have to scratch and claw for it. If Jesus has lived the perfect life and gives you credit for it through this spiritual transaction we call justification, 
then you don't need to work for anyone's approval because you have the king's absolute delight. And so when people disapprove of you, when they reject you, when they isolate you socially, it does hurt, but it doesn't devastate you because it doesn't define you. It doesn't craft your identity. And that frees you to love the unlovable. That frees you to forgive those who have sinned against you. And that frees you to be satisfied and content with who God has made you to be. It enables you to believe who He has declared you to be. And it frees you to love. If you know whose you are, the redeeming blood of Jesus heals the ugliness of sin. And as you grow in beauty, as you become more and more like Jesus, the irony of the gospel is you attract less and less attention to yourself, unlike external physical beauty. And you direct more and more attention to the glorious one who is holy above all else, who alone is beautiful. Jesus Himself. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit, who is a seal of authenticity and authority and ownership, and who is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8 as he speaks of the Holy Spirit in verse 15. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Remember our beginning this morning, verse 11? In Christ, we were also chosen. And in Christ, we were made to be an inheritance. God's special possession, His treasure, unbelievable as that is. And in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Everything our hearts long for, everything we crave, every dream we have is satisfied through faith in Jesus who reconciled us to the Father. How does this begin to get worked out in your life? It starts with simple faith. faith. Verse 13 When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. If you're a follower of Jesus by faith, you have been given the Holy Spirit. There's nothing beyond for you to work work towards, pray for, wait around and hope that you get some special gift. You have the Holy Spirit, and He's a person, and so you cannot have a little bit of Him You either have Him or you don't. Paul says in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Faith means sealing and deposit are yours. And then his role is to press home to your heart every truth that we've talked about, everything that exalts Jesus as the risen Savior. That's his job, not to make himself known. And then He makes you more like Jesus by showing you more and more clearly whose you are that you might enjoy a childlike freedom to trust your heavenly Father in all things. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, 
We give you praise. And we ask that your sealing work, that you as a deposit would bring assurance of faith, would bring strength as we live, as we obey, as we serve, that you would remind us whose we are, that we belong to the God of this universe, the creator of all things, the heavenly Father, and we have a right in intimacy to call him Abba. Holy Spirit, fill us with power. Fill us with reminders, assurances of Jesus, our risen Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.